Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. America's borrowing limit has been raised in exchange for cuts to government spending. But as we heard on Friday's show, getting more money for defense is going to be tough. We're going to see what market reaction uh, to the agreement is. Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun says that the company's next single-aisle jetliner could be shaped by the trust wing transonic demonstrator the company is developing for NASA. He sees the giant as being on the upswing, but its Starliner spacecraft has experienced another delay. Airbus could be getting a giant order from Indigo. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says he's delaying his long-anticipated offensive as he calls on nations to donate more air and missile defenses. The country now has two Patriot batteries, and he says he needs 48 more. And American business titans like Tesla's Elon Musk and J.P. Morton's Jamie Dimon were in China last week and both conformed to Beijing's line that it's time to put trade and cooperation first. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Everybody, thanks so very much uh, again for joining us, especially on this shortened week. It's great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you for having us. Great to be on, Vargo. Happy Sunday. Uh, happy Sunday uh, to all. Uh, Ron, start us off, right? A little bit of a shorter uh, week. Market uh, was, uh, you know, last week we were we were talking about how the president and uh, the House Speaker had a deal. That deal has been passed by the House. It's been passed by the Senate and signed uh, by uh, the president. It's a two-year uh, reprieve. Uh, as we discussed on Friday's show, though, getting more money for defense is going to be tough, right? There was some discussion this week about whether a supplemental measure or Ukraine supplemental could hide that money. Give us a sense on how the, the street uh, more broadly is uh, taking this news and how the group, uh, the aerospace and defense group, performed uh, against uh, these broader trends. This week uh, was a, 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 a positive week in the market. The S&P was up uh, almost 2%, uh, 1.8%. And then if you look across um, uh, the coverage, uh, the uh, you know, Boeing, Raytheon, GE, names with, that are identified as commercial aerospace names, they are up three to three and a half uh, percent ahead of the S&P. Uh, the defense names, you know, Northrop, GD, Lockheed, they were up somewhere between a percent and a half to two percent. Uh, the space names were up a lot. This was, uh, I think, after everything kind of cleared up with the government. It was a risk-on week. So you saw some of the space names just you know, really, really kind of shoot up. Rocket Lab was up uh, 7%. Uh, Terran Orbital was up almost 8%. Uh, and then some of the more volatile names that you tend to see, uh, Embraer was up uh, 6%. The VIX was down uh, 6% on the week, almost 7, 7% on the week, down to uh, 14 and a half. Uh, the 10-year yield is still trucking along around you know, 3738 and, and the real debate in the market, I think, around interest rates now is, will the Fed hike in June or not? Most people are thinking they won't, but then maybe they'll do it in July. But there's probably one more uh, Fed hike in, pro- in, in front of us. At least that's what the market's talking about. Right. Uh, the, the, the yield curve is still inverted, right? It's an important thing. You know, will that reverse? Oil 
uh, was you know, still at that same level, kind of in the mid to low 70s for both Brent and uh, WTI. Uh, so we haven't seen a heck of a lot of change there. But I think what's important to note is if you look at where oil prices were a year ago, they're down a lot. You know, oil prices for both Brent and WTI were north of 120, and now we're kind of down in the 70s. So it's that's a big deal. And and I think what's important about that is that $80 level is sort of this broad, you know, maybe rule of thumb, which when you're below that, if you're flying older equipment, it doesn't matter as much as if oil's more expensive. So, uh, you know, given that there's all the supply chain constraints we've seen on uh, in commercial aerospace and you know the delivery headwinds, both Boeing and Airbus, uh, flying older aircraft around in the current fuel environment isn't as big an operating deal right. as as one might think in a, in a higher fuel price environment. And how's the market making sense? Uh, of what are monster job numbers, right? I mean, the Fed continues to try to pour water on the economy in order to cool inflation. And, and that's working, as you noted, right? Energy prices uh, are down. Um, on the other hand, we have these kind of big jobs numbers, right? How does, you know, and you just said all eyes are on how the Fed's going to handle this. There are some strong economic headwinds out there for sure. And there are still worries that we're going into a, uh, a recession. How do the streets sort of interpret those numbers and what they expect from the Fed and how that affects the whole ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great question, Vago. You know, the strong job numbers plus, you know, the, the agreement on the debt ceiling kind of came together to make, you know, a very strong end of the week, right? So you know, clearly, you know, the market ended on, on a high. And there's still, you know, kind of broadly this debate, what is going on in the economy? Uh, you know, the purchasing managers index is, uh, you know, below 50. So in, in the industrial sector, you're still seeing contraction, at least from an orders perspective. Uh, but labor markets are very strong. And, and the debate is, will the Fed raise in June? Will they raise in July? But I think the consensus is, even if they raise another time or maybe two, we're far closer to the end of this than the beginning. And then and then the real debate becomes, how long do rates stay where they are? And you know, like I mentioned before, when you look at the yield curve, that's a, a pretty good indicator of kind of where the market temperature is. It's still inverted. And to, and to folks that don't understand what that means, it means the, 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 the yield, the percentage you're paying for short-term money is higher than what you're paying for long-term money. Basically saying, the market's saying, rates will go down in the future. And that's inverted because typically you pay less for short-term money than you do for long-term money. And then when, and one other point that I, that I overlooked before, you know, with the, with the passages of that ceiling agreement um, and, you know, what, what it looks, the outlook for defense, I think when you think where the market was drawing a line, when all the, the debate happened with the debt ceiling, there was talk about, you know, moving things back to fiscal 22 levels. Defense wasn't cut. Right. So I think there was some expectation that defense was going to get cut. And I think if I'm interpreting it right, fiscal 24 is intact. And then in, when you get out to fiscal 25 and 26, it's a 1% increase. All right, fine. That's not optimal, but that's not bad. That's still growth. And then the real debate becomes where do you get growth and where does it come from? And does it come in the form of some sort of operational contingency, supplemental, whatever they're going to call it? And you know, legacy would suggest that's how they're going to do it. That ultimately, if they want to fund defense, they'll find a way to fund defense. Right. It, it, part of the concern is that, yes, there is an increase, but it doesn't account for inflation. And so kind of functionally becomes a cut. It's interesting how the street's looking at this is that there will be a solution. Whereas on Friday, we were talking a little bit about the fine print, about how you know a supplemental maybe something very difficult to do. So everybody's, you know, all eyes are on uh, how uh, that works itself out because there is a lot but, of bipartisan support for defense. But one thing I, I would mention, you know, 
the defense budget analysts are really the only people on the planet, at least from a market perspective, who think about budgets in real terms, right? I mean, you know, you you, you buy and sell stocks on nominal dollars. It's it's right. on what the dollar is then, and so so even though from a real perspective it's shrinking, from a nominal perspective it's growing, which is better than nominal shrinking. And ultimately, the markets live in a nominal world, particularly the equity market. Sash, you've been very uh, patient. Let's pull you in. Uh, European drivers, right? European holders of American debt surely uh, are breathing a sigh of uh, relief now. Uh, I think everybody's breathing a sigh of relief now. Um, It's a two-year reprieve before the circus starts up again. Talk to us about some of the broader drivers uh, for European defense and uh, aerospace stocks over the past week. Yeah, look, I mean, there's a side of relief. Although you, you wouldn't have told it, seen this in the markets, frankly. But, you know, I mean, most European investors just could not believe you would be that stupid as to as to go into default, um, which, would, you know, may be charitable or may, may actually just re- reflect an ability to take a step back and to, 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 to look at the situation, you know, in slightly more sort of cold-bloodedly. Um, uh, uh, yeah, you know, hopefully it's more than two years before you go through this sort of process again, because... Ultimately, this does um, affect the cost the cost of your debt, uh, hence you know cost of capital and the sort of credibility of the of the U.S. abroad. So you know, hopefully, well well longer than two years. Um, otherwise, you know, for the for for last week, it was an you know it was a short trading week, and boy, that showed in, in lack of stock market performance. Um, uh, most stocks were you know plus or minus a percent, and it wasn't even worth picking any of them out. I mean, you know, the average was was minus 0.3 of a percent the civil stocks were were on average flat the defense stocks were up a, a tiny amount but actually the you know the only stock that had that was a, a decent size uh stock that had any performance was airbus it was up to two and a half percent and um we're just starting to see i think the the run-up of share prices towards the paris air show i mean we'll we're going to talk about indigo later on uh but i you know just investors are getting optimistic that uh, you know Paris Air Show, Airbus normally comes out with orders, and there's always a feeling of you know you buy before the air show, and you probably sell on about day two, day three of the air show. Uh, I think we're starting to see the Paris Air Show trade being put on now. Uh, and uh, any other uh, drivers, sentiments, headlines that struck you as interesting over the course of the past week? No, I mean you know there, there's very little news coming out of of Ukraine that actually affects the stocks affects the share prices um uh and so the you know the defense stocks are, are uh slightly uh slightly drifting at the moment um you know mildly up a bit because there is a you know there's a broader concern in equity markets and sort of hoping um among defense uh stocks that demand relating to ukraine is going to continue to uh, to rise but it was as i said very very short trading week it was a long holiday week for a number of european countries and that really shows. Richard, thanks uh, for being patient. And I want to turn to you to start us off on the discussion. I, and by the way, you're welcome to talk about any macroeconomic trends uh, that you, you'd like to attend, uh, uh, address. But I want to uh, get to Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun's comments to uh, reporters, uh, our mutual friends, Dominic Gates of the Seattle Times, uh, as well as Al Root of uh, Barron's uh, were there for it and both uh, had thoughtful uh, articles. Obviously, this is a pre-Paris air show, uh, right? I mean, the air show is only about uh, two weeks away. Um, Calhoun said the company 
Uh, company's new airplane is likely to be influenced by uh, the demonstrator, the trust wing transonic demonstrator the company's developing for NASA. Um, he was talking, you know, uh, about, uh, you know, there being a, a positive swing uh, and, and momentum, a lot of lessons learned, and then uh, talked a lot about programs. For you, what were the things that sort of jumped out? And do you think that a trust wing transonic airplane is the right answer to address the sort of competition from Airbus? Yeah, you know, both interviews kind of confirmed my suspicion that uh, Dave Calhoun is unquestionably the best CEO that Airbus could have wished for in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I think if you look at the, the trust wing, for example, I'll let Ron weigh in on this. He does in fact have a, a doctorate in this subject, but you know, look, on the one hand, Calhoun's been saying, hey, you know, we're going to know in 10 years about changes in digitization and propulsion, and we're going to learn so much. And then all of a sudden, somehow it crosses his attention that the government is giving them money to develop something, partly develop as a prototype using an MD-90 of all things, something that's been around for decades. So I, you can't help but con get the confirmation here that he simply doesn't want to spend any money. You know, there's nothing coming in the future that he knows about. There may be something from the past that they're paying them to do, but you can safely assume that he does not know, and I don't think very many people do. And in the meantime, his other comments sort of confirm exactly that. He came out and said, well, we're not going to have a new design, but not to worry. All we have to do is discount. You know, basically the 321neo is beating the Max 10 six, or one, 6 to 1 or something like that or more. All we have to do is discount. And that is what you would say if you had never had any contact with this industry before, because historically that strategy is a disaster. It also, yet again, hugely enables Airbus, which must be incredibly grateful to have this guy as CEO. I mean, basically, as I understand it, you still have that most favored nation airline uh, pricing clause that would probably kick in. So if you start discounting even more, you're telling your existing customers, hey, you should probably renegotiate prices at some point, if not now, then later. And of course, once you start discounting, you know, there's a knock-on effect for your entire product line. It's not like you can discount max 10s and not have backsplash on max eight and max nine. And then on top of that, of course, you never get pricing power back. You've contributed yet another round of uh, commodification of depricing to this industry. Your suppliers won't like you. And eventually you they'll start you mean price wars don't work? Price wars, that is the bottom line. I should probably stop there. There are so many reasons, but price wars are a seriously amateurish idea. And, and, but I, and I interrupted you, I'm sorry. And you said customers will, so finish, finish that thought. Well, suppliers, uh, I think, inevitably are going to get the message and just prioritizing Airbus. <laughs> Prioritize Airbus in terms of shipments, shipments in terms of uh, new product development, in terms of everything, really. I mean, it's, I, I don't understand this strategy on any level. The last time I remember it was tried was the A340-600 versus 777-300ER. And I remember Airbus being very aggressive about the idea of pricing. Uh, that was their only hope. And of course, it was a disaster. The end results were, what, seven to one, eight to one in favor of the 777-300ER. And of course, the A340 went to a well-deserved grave. Um, what are some other things he said that you thought were interesting before we open it up to uh, the, re the rest of the team? Well, I would like to get Ron's confirmation of my view of the, the trust brace wing as something we don't know. You know, I mean, 
obviously the big question with something like that is where's the fuel go and uh, <laughs> how scalable is this and why wasn't it adopted before because it's not exactly a high aspect but ratio wing is not exactly high tech it's something that's been around for quite some time and what are the propulsion assumptions that go with that because originally when he said new, no new products you know there was the assumption that something new was happening on the propulsion front has that changed so I think it was really what was not said as much as what was said. Ron? Yeah, the, the trust-based wing concept is um, it's interesting. As Richard points out, um, it's a high aspect ratio wing. I mean, just go look at a glider. Gliders are high aspect ratio wings. Uh, so it's, you know, it's aerodynamic technology that's been known about for a long time. Uh, there's a couple issues that jump out at me, right? And to be fair, I mean, I haven't looked at their specific design and it's not actually open to the public and so on and so forth. But when you have a, a skinny wing like that, a long skinny wing, it can be floppy in the sense of the word floppy. So, and then particularly when you hang uh, a bigger engine on it, engines have a lot of weight. So you're hanging an engine from a wing that has uh, the possibility of being flexible. That's why you put the truss on there. The truss is to help help the wing be less, less, less floppy for a lack of better words. Now to, you know, you know the aerodynamic system, I worry about flutter right you know, aircraft that have those kind of structures uh when you have funky mass loadings uh it's a it's a dynamic problem right as you're flying you know the aerodynamics loads up uh, the structure the structure responds and when you have those kind of structures they can respond in ways that could be hard to predict or hard to control uh and and i think that's ultimately the challenge i think a bigger question is, and this is what I ask myself all the time, and this is maybe a little bit off the reservation, as we go to this next generation of airplanes, I believe most likely it's going to be a tube with wings. Uh, and that's really not all that different than what we have today. And it's really not all that different if you go back to the beginning of the jet age. And you know where we're going to get gains uh, from an efficiency point of view, again, are going to be from the engine manufacturers and what they do. Uh, and a bigger question, I think, then becomes how do the engine manufacturers get paid for that? Because I think if you got both the engine manufacturers today and said, hey, are you getting fairly paid for uh, the the development you did in the LEAP or in the GTF? They'd probably say they're not. That, you know, on the in the case of the GTF, most likely uh, the price that Airbus is getting, uh, Pratt is not getting. And I think given the discounts on 737s, uh, GE would probably argue the same thing on the LEAP. So I there, something probably has to change there. And then other places you can get efficiency are materials. That's where composites came into it. And then maybe manufacturing techniques and maintenance and operations. But that it turns out that tube with, with the wing, as we know today, it's a pretty darn good design. It's pretty darn optimized, right? So to try to do better on that in a material way, in a way that can be really useful is extraordinarily difficult. Um, and but I mean, in in fairness uh, to what Calhoun said, right? I mean, he said would could be influenced by it, right? I mean, so he did uh, suggest. Uh, look, I mean, a, a little bit of the challenge is you know companies sometimes make mistakes and companies other times do pump fakes, right? I mean, we saw the whole Sonic Cruiser uh, thing uh, that was happening at a time when Airbus was deciding to go through the you know, A380 and, you know, was it a real thing? Was it a mind game? Was it whatever? I mean, the jury's still out on that. But um, ultimately, are there elements to the design to be charitable to the to the Boeing chief executive that actually could influence the shape of a future airplane in sort of a novel or creative way, aside from the fact that, yeah, pretty much a tube with engines 
on the wings or at the very back end of the fuselage or the way you build an airplane. So, I mean, this isn't, I mean, honestly, it's not commentary about Calhoun, just, you know, aircraft design in general, right? Um, so, yeah, not having the wing on the bottom, but putting the wing on top, that'll allow you to have a, a bigger engine. Okay, that's cool. You'll have more clearance. So maybe future aircraft will be designed where their high wings is exposed to, as opposed to low wings. Are they going to be high wings of ultra high aspect ratio? That, you know, as Richard has pointed out, you know, where does the fuel go? As I mentioned before, flutter. There's other issues. How do you fold the wings up? How do they fit in the existing infrastructure? There's all there's a whole multitude of, of problems that could bring with it. But can you make a commercial airplane that looks more like a C-17 than a seven three seven, of course you can, and there's advantages and disadvantages to doing that. Um, so you know that, but still, I would argue, it's a tube with a wing. <laughs> you know, right? you know that, that's you know, does it have a T tail or not? I mean, n- none of these trades are are revolutionary, and and you know, kudos to the industry. They figured out how to do it, and they do it pretty darn well. Sasha, I want to uh, move the conversation onto uh, Indigo's. Uh, possible order uh, for 500 Airbuses, which is a pretty big uh, order. Uh, but first, give you an opportunity to weigh in on what Calhoun said, whether about the trust wing design or about anything else uh, that the Boeing chief executive uh, mentioned. Um, yeah, I mean, I, just a couple of points about the, you know, the, the trust wing design. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the, uh, Boeing has a very, very proud tradition of pump fakes. Uh, it, it, you know, they will Tell us they're all tell us all they're working on one design and they come up with something else and that's smart actually it just keeps people um, it takes people uh, off balance and particularly Airbus a little bit off balance and that you know that's a good thing and uh, you know Sonic Cruiser was a was a classic example of that. Um, I, what I'm interested by uh, Ron's comments about how Cuban wings is you know a, a very very good design. I think I would characterize it. Although I feel very um, cautious about saying this, uh, you know, to Ron, because he's way more qualified uh, than I am. But tube and wing is, I think it's the most optimized design commercially, rather than the best design. I'm very taken by the fact that every single time that a whole bunch of academics, you know, which probably should ring some warning bells, but you know, there there, there is a clean sheet of paper, design the next generation airline. I mean, for example, here in the UK, the Royal Aeronautical Society, does a you know an annual competition for uh, uh, graduates stu- uh, and students and so forth? Says you know design the next generation um, uh, aircraft. It's never a tube with wings. It's almost always some form of of big delta because in aerodynamics terms that's the quotes unquote best to de- design. The problem is that commercially it stinks. Always always has done because it it is an unscalable design. So it's a it's a single performance point uh, that um, that they're designing to, 150 seats, say, but does anyone want a 150-seat airliner in eight years' time, let alone 15 years' time? Whoa, that's a big one. Um, so, you know, Tube with Wings is probably the second best at every single stage, but it, wor- you know, it works very well because it is incredibly um, scalable. My question will be whether that, uh, you know, that the hard economics will be enough if, and I'm increasingly thinking this industry will not get to net zero by 2050 and may not get there you know, in my lifetime. Um, but you know, if the industry is going to get net zero, can, we, can it get away with what are effectively derivative designs? And even Trust Wing is still a derivative design of tube with wings compared to 
a uh, a blended wing sign. Blended wing body is a, is a is a great design. It's a way to carry a lot of volume very efficiently, but it's a very difficult design to scale. Unlike the tube and wings, if you want to make a smaller variant or bigger variant, you can add a fuselage. That gets difficult in that structure because you just can't stretch it. You have to scale it, which becomes very complicated. Uh, and then you have the operational issues around having passengers far from windows and so on and so forth, exiting the aircraft efficiently. Can that stuff be worked around? Probably. But my guess is the most difficult commercial angle on this is if you come up with a nominal design, so whatever, your blended wing body, 200, and you want to come up with a 100 version and 300 version, that's much more difficult to do than just adding some fuselage, which you typically do today. And uh, let's uh, go back, Sash, want to get your take on the uh, Indigo order, uh, Indigo order, and uh, what you think uh, it means. And then, uh, Richard, I'm going to come to you uh, just in a moment, because I want to get your seven, uh, 777X freighter uh, possible order by Cathay uh, Pacific. Go ahead, Sash. Yeah, I mean, this is a, um, a report from uh, Reuters that uh, Airbus is close to, or, or actually, I think they say closing, um, an order for uh, up to 500 A320neo uh, aircraft from Indigo. And Indigo, not to be confused with Indigo, the uh, airline holding company generally based in uh, towards North America, Indigo is the currently the largest Indian carrier, way bigger than um, uh, Air India or India Airlines. Um, and it's already the biggest customer for the A320neo. Uh, it was the, uh, a huge customer for the A320 uh, CEO beforehand. Um, I, from memory, it's still got 300, 300, 380, 390 A320s on order. So why it needs another 500, I don't know, except that they clearly want to try to, try to trump uh, Air India, which ordered a ton of aircraft a couple of months ago, I, I worry that what we're seeing here is, frankly, slightly irresponsible, ego-driven uh, uh, ordering. Uh, who would have thought airlines would do that, um, rather than necessarily uh, a you know a, a cold uh, understanding of what the Indian and the uh, regional market actually uh, can can take, given the competition elsewhere. But uh, I may be being um, a little bit cynical on that. I suspect this is one that we'll see at Paris. Uh, Richard, your your sense on on that order, and then lead us right off into uh, the Cathay Pacific possibility, right? I mean, the triple seven X hasn't even gone into passenger service yet, and we, you know, and generally the freighter variants are things we tend to see a little bit later, and it's not it's it's not like there aren't a lot of really good airplanes that are on the freighter market uh, and and actually going into the freighter market, right? Boeing did a you know seven thirty seven Max freighter, uh, even anyway. But give us any comment on the Indy uh, Go order as well as uh, then take us to triple uh, seven. Well, I think Sash is right. There's a little bit of uh, you know braggadocio and in ordering this number of planes at this point, even if India is the new China, gee, that's an awful lot of jets. And inevitably there's gonna be the jockeying for position because of course, Air India is placing the big order now that they're under Tata leadership and ownership that they think they can reform themselves and good for them and compete with the, as, a, as Sash says, the biggest carrier now, which is of course a low cost carrier, um, that's the tall order. So I think, Indigo is making the point that no, you can't, and we're going to take all that traffic. It'll be, it'll be a heck of a fight. 
Uh, I suspect Indigo has strong advantages. We'll see how long uh, Air India is prepared to stick it out, or rather Tata is prepared to stick it out and, and go after this growth. The Cafe one is, is really interesting. You know, there is this battle for the 747 freighter replacement market. Of course, the 747 freighter over many decades was kind of the, the, one of the key engines of economic growth in the Pacific Rim. So Cafe Pacific is, uh, even with Hong Kong's uh, Lamentably, uh, somewhat uh, you know, uh, diminished position in the global economy, courtesy of the People's Republic of China. Still, a very important airline, a very important market for freighters, and uh, this, these planes will be replacing, uh, of course, the seven four seven F in their fleet. Um, it's pretty clear the triple seven F has an advantage. Uh, XF, I should say, has an advantage over the A three fifty freighter, and this really gives them another notch towards that uh, that. That strong number one position. Good. Let's uh, go to the defense portion uh, of our discussion. Obviously, uh, a short week with some interesting uh, commercial uh, news in it as all of us prepare for uh, the Paris Air Show. Uh, just really quickly, for a word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And a reminder for our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who help clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own JJ Gertler. Uh, Before we go to uh, the defense portion of our conversation that Sash is going to head up, uh, really quickly, uh, Richard, how did you interpret, uh, right? I mean, there are a a lot of eyebrows went up in Washington, uh, given that both uh, Tesla and SpaceX boss Elon Musk, as well as JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon, uh, were in China and, and basically parroting a lot of the lines from Beijing you know, about trade and, you know, the importance to not raise tensions and which is, you know, Beijing is angry at the United States and won't take meetings at the Shangri-La Dialogue uh, because it's angry. We shot down its spy balloon that was spying on on the United States, right? Whew. Talk about chutzpah uh, we can discuss as as fellow New Yorkers. You know, what, what signal does that send and how did you interpret it, right? Because everybody obviously is trying to navigate this. Jamie Dimon is you know, it's a major bank as, as you know, obviously interest in China. Elon Musk makes cars and he wants to sell them in China. Um, how, how, what, what did that signal to you as somebody who's, who's, you know, leans more toward more open trade, but is also cognizant of the challenges that are in the ecosystem now? Yeah, um, boy, I mean, it was yet another moment in a, uh, a, a dynamic we've seen for about uh, six or seven years where both the Trump and Biden administration have been uh, doing their best to clamp down on everything from trade to technology to uh, overall strategic posturing with China and businesses going its own way and insisting we've got to keep things exactly as they are. Um, I, I tend to you know, be kind of a, gee, let's do our best, but from my standard, they, they went a bit too far. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I, I just, don't see any way at this point that things could be returned to where they were. You know, obviously right now we've gone from trade, to brute trade force to semiconductors and, uh, and all the semiconductor equipment with it. And it's pretty clear that 
you know, the administration is going to continue the policy of, of being, you know, of, of having a relatively hard line on technology and, and other aspects of trying relations. So uh, I, I just don't think this was a good look, but maybe given the, you know, the importance of China as a source of production for Tesla and as a market for other players, uh, maybe this sort of tension is inevitable. So one point I might add to Richard's comments is, uh, one, we can't forget China is an important market for batteries. Electric cars require batteries, as well as a very large market for cars, automobiles, uh, electric or otherwise. Uh, and then on the banking side, uh, I know JP Morgan's made big investments in expanding in China. So, you know, this just seems like, you know, business going after their own interests and just, I guess, is rational behavior on, on the side of businesses that have made those investments. And, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, Bank of America or any bank on the planet, uh, there are uh, massive investments and, and even, uh, you know, merchant banks uh, like Carlyle Group and others uh, are also deeply vested. You know, so even if, if one side of the company is focused on national security, uh, other uh, sides uh, of the company are doing their fiduciary responsibility to make money. Um, uh, Sash, uh, Vladimir Zelensky uh, has is taking the case that he needs more air and missile defenses and indeed talks about the importance of air supremacy, uh, or at least air superiority before going uh, into the war. Um, he's getting F-16s, he's getting storm shadows and other precision weapons, uh, but is, is really calling for greater air and missile defenses, obviously, because the, the Russians keep bombarding Kiev, uh, doing daylight raids. Uh, Ukrainians now paying back uh, a little bit uh, with an attack on Moscow uh, that happened uh, since we uh, recorded. Where does Vladimir, he's got two Patriot batteries now, one from Germany, the other from the United States. Um, he wants 48 more. Where is he going to get 48 more Patriot batteries? He's not. They don't exist in the world, period. Um, you know, there, there are, there are <laughs> oh, never thank been. You. Thank you. And <laughs> on that <laughs> note, Mr. <laughs> President. And, 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 and end of move on. Move on. Um, look, let's assume that there's a linguistic issue here. There is a you know, difference between a Patriot battery. Uh, does he mean Patriot batteries? Does he mean Patriot launchers? And, uh, you know, what, is he, what does he want them for? What, you know, why, why 48? Um, Zelensky is very. Well, very he, he says I need uh, fifty, you know, or, or it was reported that yeah, he yeah. needs fifty, right, in order to cover the country, yeah. front lines, etc. I mean, that would be a phenomenal um, layered missile de uh, missile defense system. That would be a missile defense system that you know has never been seen in in in, in the world. I mean, that you know that, that that would be way more complex and effective than you know, for example, North Vietnam had um, or. Uh, that that was seen uh, in the various Arab Arab Israeli wars. Um, uh, you know, I I, I sort of am puzzled by this because one of the many attractions of Patriot is that there are so many. You know, it's got such good range. The uh, radar has got such good coverage that even when you have them heavily overlapping, you don't need very many. And you know, we we, we see this with the comparable Russian S three hundred and S four hundred systems. Um, you know, a a an individual battery can cover hundreds of uh, of square miles. Um, let's let's assume for you know that, that what actually what he means is I just need fifty modern uh, batteries of uh, uh, anti aircraft missiles. That could include NASAMs. That could include uh, Sky uh, Saber from uh, the UK. Uh, that could include RBS seventies from from Sweden. In many respects, what is good about this rather um, 
you know, jumble of Ukrainian missile systems that have been donated to them is that they are, it is such an erratic system. It is a system where the Russians never quite know which missile is going to turn up where because, uh, <clears throat> and they all have a different uh, radar signature and they all have a different way of working. That actually adds to his defense. But 48 Patriot missile batteries doesn't exist, never has been built. He won't get them. He, um, but uh, if he got, you know, the, the equivalent missiles, whoa, yeah, I'm sure he could use them. I think, um, uh, you know, air and missile defense has been the uh, one of the real surprises of this war. The, the Ukrainian air defense systems have been incredibly effective. Let's, let's assume that they are overstating their success rate by several tens of percents, which is entirely possible. You know, they're still shooting down well over half of all the missiles, drones and aircraft that, that come over uh, Ukraine. And that is, that's deeply impressive. That suggests that our stuff, work, our stuff and what was left of, of their stuff works. And when it's used effectively, um, it, it creates, well, it certainly negates any air superiority by Russia. You know, Russian aircraft don't turn up over Ukraine, period. Um, uh, so, yeah, he, he's going to need more missiles. He, you know, any modern air defence system that is given to Ukraine will be put to very, very good use. I can see why he wants more patriots, because the Russians are clearly targeting them. And the ability of Ukraine to be able to do a slightly longer version of shoot and scoot and move the batteries around in a very, very agile way. I think that would add to the survivability of those uh, systems enormously. I, that's what I would want. I mean, even another two, which would enable him to uh, enable him to do that would be a, a, a real plus. Every time uh, a defending nation does a, um, even a seemingly small attack can have orders of magnitude impact uh, on the recipient of the attack, right? The United States, bombed uh, Tokyo in June 1942, the Japanese put a lot of resources to defending Tokyo because they said, oh my God, you know, even though the, the damage at that point was not serious, it was sufficient to, dis to distract resources. British raids throughout the war prompted the Germans to plant troops in all sorts of places because uh, they, they, they thought they could be vulnerable. Do you think that the Ukrainian attack uh, on Moscow and some of the attacks uh, around Belgorod, whether or not they're, you know, done by you know, Russian partisan groups backed by Ukraine or not. How do they change the dynamic and the planning and the potential headaches for the Russians? Uh, look, a lot. They force the Russians to redeploy assets that they would rather not redeploy. So drone attacks on um, Moscow. You don't need to get very many drones through to Moscow for the Russians to have to put many more air defense units and particularly low level air defense units around Moscow than they would want. Those low level air defense units will come from around Ukraine. And that therefore makes the job of Ukrainian drone operators, uh, missile operators and so forth um, uh, in, in their own country just a little bit easier. And similarly, you know, these diversionary raids, which is what I think they are by Russian separatists or whatever we want to call them. Um, it, it reminds Russia that this very, very long border, unfortunately, works both ways. Uh, it's a vulnerability for Ukraine, but it's a vulnerability for Russia as well. That has to pull some troops and some border guards from where Russia would wants to have them to, to somewhere where they don't want to have them. It, it's really smart. Um, uh, they, you know, they're going to have to keep keep on doing this. But this is a this is a fantastic way of uh, taking a bit of the pressure off uh, the front that you want to do something at, and 
um, adding to your enemy's uh, you know, list of problems. Everybody, thanks so very much. A uh, real pleasure uh, having you on the show. Thanks so much for making time for us, especially since all of us are in very, very different places uh, as we try to execute this and are on the move. Hope you guys have uh, a great weekend and a great week. Thanks so very much. And bon voyage for all of you who are traveling. Thanks, Vago. Always, always a pleasure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Thank you, Vago. Great to be on, Vago, as always. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for joining us uh, today. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible uh, every day. And check out the week ahead program uh, tomorrow. Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses and uh, the one and only Byron Callen of uh, the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners will be joining us for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Thanks very much. Hope everybody had a great weekend, has a great evening, and we'll see you again tomorrow.